Probably, like you, I memorialize certain bygone years as the year I graduated high school, the year I turned a significant number, the year of a certain election. 1994, I will forever remember as the year of the constant repetition of the phrase, Betty Rubble, as Betty Rubble, of every single actress in Hollywood. They decided for the final casting of Betty Rubble in a Flintstones live-action movie that Rosie O'Donnell was the best choice. Is it possible no one affiliated with a production of this movie ever actually saw one single episode of the Flintstones? Betty Rubble? That indignation was very easy to maintain as a large portion of America was echoing the same thing, although admittedly letting it go considerably sooner. I still have not completely. It was equally infuriating, though considerably lonelier two years later when the Queen of Nice, a title she was still managing to pull off, was cast in the role of the wise, sarcastic, fantastic nanny in the movie version of Harriet the Spy, a movie I accidentally watched while babysitting. This is appalling. This is a travesty of cinema, I informed the children ages five, three, and eight months. No, no nightmares, the five-year-old told me. Have you guys read Harriet the Spy? I asked them. I want a popsicle, the three-year-old replied. Okay, look, look, I told them. Old Golly, the book character, the real one, the real nanny of Harriet, looks, acts, sounds, and is nothing, nothing like that whiny, nasty, pretending she isn't Elmo-loving swamp witch on the screen. Elmo! agreed the five- and three-year-old. Okay, I said, pointing at Rosie O'Donnell on the screen. You guys know the Flintstones? Which Flintstones character does that person most look like? The kids thought for a while. Fred, said the three-year-old finally. Devin, I told him, you are a good boy and you are a genius. And there were popsicles all around. Louise Fitzhugh's Harriet the Spy is, I think, where I first learned the trick of holding an empty glass, open part to wall or door, bottom part to ear, in order to hear in a magnified fashion what was being said in the next room. The glass-to-ear trick totally worked and became the reason I asked for a glass of water every night before bed and set me off in a lifelong compulsion towards eavesdropping. I like people watching as much as the next person, but it's not so much how people act or behave or look, but what they say to each other especially candidly, that I find just endlessly fascinating. Random non sequiturs, loudly voiced public arguments, really disturbing explicit confessions. I love it all. I like it more than a movie. I should probably feel worse about this than I do. So you can take that as a caution if I'm out at the same somewhere you are with an earshot and I appear to be concentrating on something else. Rest assured, I'm totally listening to you. You can use that information to move away if you like. The couple at the table next to me, an older man and an older woman, at a restaurant while I was waiting for my friend Josie to arrive, had no such forewarning, which is why I caught every shred of their conversation. It started weirding me out so much I even had to haul out my ever-present notebook and start taking some notes, just like my old friend Harriet. This was probably in the earliest parts of 2003. Here's the overheard conversation from notes. It'll be the third day of the third month of the third year of the third millennium, the woman said. March 3rd, 2003, I wrote in my notebook. And you know what's interesting? The woman continued. 
The world-famous astrologer Sidney Omar died on the 3rd of January at 3.03 p.m. It's always been the most magical and significant of numbers, which is probably why we have the Holy Trinity. This sort of convergence of the number three to this level won't happen again for a thousand years. So what are you saying? The man asked. You think war? If it's a global war, the woman answered, it would be World War III. Fuck, I wrote in my notebook. You know, I don't know if I believe all that, the man said. Well, the woman answered, Catholic churches all over the world are calling for a day of prayer and fasting on that day. It makes you think. And astrologically, if you take a map of the skies right over Baghdad on 3303, Pisces opens up its mouth and the arrow and bow of Sagittarius will be pointing directly at Mars, the god of war. I underlined my curse about six times, or as my dining room companions might have put it, three plus three times. Well, said the man, what makes you think is it's also Casimir Pulaski Day. Now, what's that now? The woman asked. Casimir Pulaski, the man said. The first Monday in March? We used to get the day off as a holiday in Chicago. I guess they don't do it here. He was a Polish war hero who helped fight the Russians in the 1770s. He could hit a bullseye with a gunshot while riding full tilt on horseback. And then he heard about the American Revolution and came over to help us. And under George Washington, he trained and led our nation's first fully formed cavalry. They titled him the father of American cavalry, even though he was from Europe and didn't even speak a word of English. I was scribbling notes now like a person possessed. Well, the woman said, that fits right in then, because I'll tell you what's significant about, are you ready to order? The waiter asked two inches from my elbow. Ah, ah, I said suavely. No, I'm waiting for a friend. And there she is. Josie, who was just walking in, actually had a look very similar to the real cartoon Betty, Betty Rebel, but except that she's half Asian and has a more conservative dress sense. I'm sorry I'm late. I got caught up on the phone, she told me. Josie, I said. Have you ever heard of Kazmir Polowski? What? No, she said, taking the menu. It's a crazy work day. What was crazy for you, I wondered. Oh my gosh, she said. The phone call I got stuck on, that was my friend Carrie from Eastern Oregon, and we were talking about this TV thing for like three hours. Three, I thought. Okay, she said, I'll ask you the same thing we were talking about. What's like, what's the worst ever reoccurring theme or trope in TV shows and it's always lame but they keep hauling it out year after year and season after season anyway oh, I said with glee as that is my number one beloved thing to talk about or at least that category of thing no medical training person delivering the baby of pregnant woman usually in an elevator was brought up as was the appearance of a twin who was actually a distant cousin or even no blood relation and by the time the waiter returned to take our order, we'd progress to horrific Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life dream sequences during holiday episodes. We had finished our soup when we decided on the winner. And that winner was, one character decides out of nowhere they'd always wanted to be a rock and roll star. And we, the audience, must squirm through a horrifying and usually appallingly long-seeming episode of them bringing forth the rock. The blue ribbon in this category was awarded to the episode of Baywatch, which was about 50% slow motion montage of Mitch's then young and tragic looking son Hobie at his monkey faced prepube nastiness. 
I don't mean he didn't have pubes. I've I've no idea of the state of his pubes. I meant prepubescent. Singing and boogieing across the beach and occasionally rocking the Casio keyboard. Though there were strong contenders from Happy Days 90210 Saved by the Bell and Growing Pains. The waiter put down our appetizer. You didn't finish your soup, I pointed out to Josie. I know, she said, it was really good. But I've been leery of Asian soup ever since I went to Hong Kong and had the most horrific eating experience of my life. Oh, I said, tell me. No, she said, no. Oh, come on, I said. Trust me, said Josie. You don't want to hear it. It's really, really disgusting. Well, it can't be more disgusting, I said, than the image of Hobie Buchanan trying to break dance I have in my head. Fair enough, said Josie. But you can't say you weren't warned. In Hong Kong, Josie's host had taken her to a local restaurant renowned the city over for its fabulous duck. Josie had steeled herself for the likelihood that the duck would arrive at the table cooked but still looking just like a duck with wings, feet, head, and beak all disturbingly intact, which it had. What Josie had not banked on was the waiter then slicing up the duck from the bottom, holding it over a ceramic bowl, and then squeezing shooting forth a cascade of everything you would find inside a duck if you hadn't taken one thing out of the duck prior to cooking, which they hadn't. I seriously, seriously, seriously thought I was going to pass out from the smell and the sight combined, said Josie. And all the time, the guy has the bird twisted, so its fried head is staring right at me with its eyes. And my Chinese hosts are looking at me all delighted. So finally, the waiter has squeezed out every last bit of everything, and he picks up the bowl of the guts and the thing, and he sets it down in front of me. The guest is an honor. And then the host next to me explains, that's the soup. The waiter, of course, chose that moment to set our main course dishes in front of us. Wow, I said to the food. Wow, I said to Josie's story. So, I said, stupidly, was that the grossest thing you ate while you were there? Now, I don't know what necessarily possessed me to ask this. I swear the only time I ever have the what's the grossest thing you've ever eaten conversation is when I'm out and we're about to eat. That might have been the grossest, said Josie. I came close to eating something grosser or at least as gross, but I chickened out at the last minute and I can't say I'm sorry. Did I press her for details? Does Rosie O'Donnell need an entire roll of industrial underwire for her bras? In between the big skyscraper shopping or business district areas of Hong Kong, said Josie, there are all these little sudden stretches of area that are set up like old street fair marketplaces with tables of vendors selling everything you can think of. It was my last day in the city and I wanted to get some souvenir type things. So I was walking around, walking around, looking at everything, and I reached this booth where they have a big pen with all these sort of like pygmy rabbits hopping around. Oh no, I said. No, wait, said Josie. So there are they're so cute, said Josie, and the guy in charge of the booth sees me looking and he starts going, you buy bunny, buy bunny, you buy bunny. And I'm trying to find enough words in Chinese to explain to him I can't buy a bunny. I'm leaving on a plane and he's all adamant. No, no, buy bunny, you buy bunny. And this small crowd have now like gathered and they're all chanting, buy bunny, you buy bunny. And I'm getting all freaked out. And then the main guy, the guy in charge, he gives me a big smile and he opens a top latch on a door on this huge wooden crate and he points down into it. And I look inside and there's this huge, like 20 foot, massive, hissing, coiled up python. So that's when I realized you don't buy the bunny to keep the bunny. You buy the bunny for the privilege of feeding it to the snake. Help, I said. I know, said Josie. All during all of this, Josie and I were, by the way, eating hungrily. And I guess I can only apologize to 
bunnies. We weren't eating rabbit. All right. So I succeed in explaining that I will not, don't want to buy a bunny to give to the snake, said Josie. So then the crowd starts chanting, snake, 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 snake. And there's a lot more people at this point, And a bunch of them are waving money. And I start having these horrible visions that now I'm going to have to fight the snake or something. So the booth guy pulls out a second wooden box, a much smaller one from under the table. And he opens it. And there's a bunch of smaller snakes writhing around inside. And he grabs one behind the head and he lifts it up in the air. And the crowd just gives this mighty cheer. And before I know what's happened, one of his assistants or something has set up this long row of shot glasses and the booth guy takes the snake and he holds it to a block and he takes a cleaver and bam off flies its head which somebody in the crowd grabs like it was a fly ball and the main guy holds the snake stretched out vertical in both hands and moves it back and forth over the row of shot glasses filling them up with snake blood and people are slapping their money down and taking a shot glass and shooting it back and then everyone would cheer and slap them on the back and the booth guy takes a glass and he holds it out to me it's good it's good he's telling me Was it good? The waiter asked, setting down the bill. What? Ah, yes, we told him. Which was true. Did you drink it? I asked Josie. I thought about it, she said, for like two seconds, but then I just turned and ran and pushed my way through the crowd. I could hear them all laughing their asses off behind me, which is fine. Better that than have like the whole crowd running after me with headless snakes in one hand and, you know, freaking duck guts or something in the other. We got up to leave, which is when I saw the magic power of three couple next to us, both staring at us in abject horror. Serves them right for eavesdropping. Like I'm sure Kazmir Paluski never talked about anything gross in his life.